Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Some of My Best Friends Are Petroleum Engineers edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And... In a wonderful piece of transatlantic ledger domain, we are magically joined from across the pond by the one and only Tim Harford. Hello, Felix. Hello, Tim. And hello, Anna. Hello. Now, in terms of like, long-time listeners to Slate Money will know Tim, because this is not the first time you have been on this show. In fact, you are on this show... More or less exactly a year ago. Yeah, and we were talking about a new book of mine, which is always a good thing to talk about. And we were also talking about the Nobel Prize in economics. And surprise, surprise, you know, what goes around comes around. So is this is this your is this what you do, Tim? Is you publish a book whenever there is a new Nobel Prize in economics? It seems to work out that way and it gives me an excuse to come on slate money. So, you know, why not? Why not? It's working. I'd need to get writing if I'm going to catch up with next year's prize. So what we have, what's what what book are you going to publish in in time for next year's prize? I want to know now. Yeah, I'd better start writing, hadn't I? Uh, you're literally not writing a book. I don't think I've ever met you when you're not writing a book. Oh, I'm writing a book, but you know, it's a, it's a secret, so it's all too early, all too early, to, and it certainly won't be out next. We, you know, what we should talk about. The book that's out now. We should. Yes. We are going to talk about the book that's out now. We are going to talk about, um, because this is all transatlantic, um, we're going to talk about Brexit, because there is things going on on the Brexit front. And yeah, we should we should just talk about the whole England versus America thing, because it does, a, it does strike me. I, I woke up at 4.45 this morning to get on a plane in Houston, Texas to make it into the studio in time to do this podcast. You have schlepped to God knows where in Oxford and struggled with Codex to be on this show. And meanwhile... It means that much to me. Meanwhile, because this is one of the problems, isn't it? It's one of these, like, two nations separated by common language. Like, the US and the UK both use ISDN, but they use slightly different sort of dialects, and so they find it very difficult to talk to each other. 
Yeah, it's it's a metaphor for something, I'm sure. It's a metaphor for something. And and meanwhile, like roughly, I don't know, what, 100 feet from us, Jordan Weissman is, um, what is he doing? He's hunched over his laptop in a deeply unergonomic yes. un manner and, and kind of looking at us and waving us away in a dismissive fashion, saying, no, 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 I have much more important things to do than appear yeah. on Slate Money. So... Um, do email us on slatemoney at slate dot com and and tell Jordan, ask Jordan, what could possibly be more important than what appearing more important on, than us? on a podcast with with Tim Harford? But yes, Tim, let's start with the Nobel Prize because this is a sexy one. Last year wasn't quite as sexy. Last year was complicated. You needed to get a specialist in to come and explain it. Exactly. A specialist to explain this one. No. This year, this year, I mean, it's not by any means the first Nobel Prize for behavioral economics, but it is the one which goes to everyone's favorite cuddly uncle, Dick Thaler. Yeah, yeah, you could describe him that way. So, so Richard Thaler was awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize. Not, not, it's not a full Nobel Prize. The, the Spherikas Bank yes. something, something, something. Yeah, the no, it's the Nobel Memorial Prize, I think is the sensible way to refer to it, for his contributions to behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is, it's come to mean just oh, cool, interesting economics, but what it really means is economics with a certain amount of psychological realism, uh, not assuming that everybody acts like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And as you say, it's been awarded before um, to people with behavioral tendencies. Uh, Daniel Kahneman in 2002, he's a psychologist. Thomas Schelling in 2005. Maurice Allais way back in the 1970s, I think. Uh, Herb Simon. But Thaler... Maybe even Bob Schiller? Certainly Bob Schiller in 2013. Thaler is the one who actually changed how economists thought about their own subject. Thaler is the one who, who I think changed the mind of the economics profession and engineered a situation by which it's no longer remarkable to publish in a mainstream economic journal with all kinds of psychological variables and tweaks. So you publish empirical work and, and you don't have to assume rationality. And, and it's just no big deal. That some people do it, some people don't do it, and nobody really worries about it anymore. And that's because of Richard Thaler. And so I, I'm interested, obviously I'm interested in his work, but I'm also interested in Thaler as an example of persuading a bunch of people who very firmly hold a particular view of the world, persuading that bunch of people to change their minds, because that doesn't happen very often. That 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 I'm really, really fascinated um, by this, because um, one of my favorite sort of corners of behavioral economics is precisely this question of how do you get people to change their minds? And specifically, you know, harmful beliefs, like, say, the belief that vaccines cause autism. Like, what's the best way, if you are faced with such a person, and especially if such a person is the parent of a young child, and you really, really want that person to be vaccinating their child. What's the best way to persuade that person to vaccinate their child? And there is a bunch of empirical work on this, and it's inconclusive. But the one thing which does seem to drop out of the studies which have been done is that if you bombard them with facts and sort of empirical analysis that generally just makes them dig in even further 
If the last year has taught us anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly, yeah, quite so. As, as so, Michael Gove famously said, I think we've had enough of experts. Well, quite so. But but economists, of course, haven't had enough of experts. So <laughs> well, so maybe it's worth just running through what he what he did in terms of persuading economists. So economists have this rational actor model, which is easy to ridicule, but is actually very powerful and very tractable and often works very well. And they didn't want to give it up. So what did Taylor do? Number one, he's been at this a long time. He's been doing this since 1980, behavioral economics since 1980. So just partly it's just this drip, 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 your patience, persistence. The second thing he did was um, he really understood what he was criticizing. So rather than just caricaturing economics or, you know, attacking it in quite a, in a straw man way or in quite an ignorant way, as a lot of people do, they attack economics, but they don't really know what economics is. Thaler really, really understood what he was attacking. He took it seriously. He, he engaged with it in, a, in an honest and, and, you know, a friendly way, I think. And so that Hence produces respect. Hence the uncle. Like, it's, it's almost impossible to dislike Richard Thaler. Yeah, well, I think some of the... Gene Famba doesn't seem to be a huge fan. (laughs) So, well, Merton Merton Miller, Merton Miller, great, uh, the late Merton Miller, great Chicago school economist, uh, um, another winner of the Nobel Prize. He complained about Thaler uh, and his behavioral economics uh, agenda. He said it's too interesting. That's the problem. It's too interesting. It's distracting us from doing serious work with all your, you know, fun little interesting things, which gets, I think, to the third thing that he did brilliantly, which is that he really engaged people's sense of curiosity. So a classic Richard Thaler uh, paper would, would start by just observing some simple fact about the world that you couldn't really deny, uh, you know, that, that, oh, we find it hard to resist chocolate brownies or something. They'd draw you in. And then he would say, well, hang on, this is a bit of a puzzle from the point of view of classical economics. And as an economist, you would have to accept, yeah, okay, it is a bit puzzling. And then he's drawing you in to this mystery. And he's not saying, you idiots, you're wrong about human nature. He's saying, well, how do we resolve this puzzle together? And he'd explore different options, the classical option, the behavioral option. And he would persuade you that this was interesting and this was a puzzle that was worth att- uh, you know, attending to and that it had some real world significance. So by engaging people's sense of curiosity, I think eventually he won the profession over. So how does that help us persuade people to vaccinate their kids? <laughs> well, um, the obvious a slightly different question, but I think you need people to um, with, with with vaccination, you need to give them a positive reason to vaccinate rather than uh, simply debunking. They have fears and you just go, well, your fears are ridiculous. Uh, so you, you need to replace their theory with another theory about what what vaccination is for and why it's really helpful and the protective effect that it has rather than just saying oh well you think it'll cause autism and that's that's unscientific and, and nonsense so i mean there's, there's i mean this is a little way uh, outside behavioral economics but the research that's been done by people like um Stefan Lewandowski is very good on this. He wrote a, a, a free book that you can download called The Debunking Handbook. And the, the sort of thing that he's talking about is where you, you need to replace people's beliefs with some 
alternative positive belief that they can embrace rather than simply trying to shoot down what they already believe. And and again, Thaler was good at this. You know, he would he would give people interesting things to think about and interesting problems to solve rather than simply just yelling, well, you guys are just wrong. And I, and I think this is really important that often when we think of behavioral economics, sometimes in um, the popular press, it's this idea that, oh, well, well, people are irrational. And it's like, well, Yes, but what he was arguing is that they're predictably irrational. And because this irrationality is predictable, you can create policies to take advantage of the irrationality of humans. And that is what he is most famous for in the U.S. is, well, he and Cass Sunstein coming together and deciding that they were going to create these wonderful things called nudges. And that if you change systems from opt in systems to opt out systems, then that can massively increase, say, the number of people who will donate their organs in the event of a car crash. And this is a great boon for society. And rational Spock-like person who doesn't want to donate their organs in you know in any world would not and does want to donate their, donate their organs in any world would. But most of us are just kind of not rational. And so we just go with the default. And, and by fiddling around with defaults, you can have important and far-reaching effects. Yeah. Well, actually, the organs th- the organs thing is is worth pausing on a moment. I mean, the, the, the clever thing about nudge, as, as you say, if people behave as classical economics says they behave, then the nudge doesn't make any difference anyway. So no, no harm, no foul. Uh, whereas if people are, in fact, predictably irrational, um, then the nudge may, may, if the government makes the right decision, may push them towards a uh, a better course of action. But or- the organ donation is interesting. So it, it, it is often described the way you've described it, Felix, that, oh, you just um, put people on an organ donor register by default, and then you increase the rates of organ donation. That's actually not what Thaler argues for. And he's actually been active on Twitter just the last few days on, on this particular point, because um, that does very successfully increase the number of people on the organ donor register. But your aim is not how many people are on the organ donor register. The aim is, do people donate their organs or not? And in practice, what happens is you then, someone's in a, a motorbike accident, say, and you have to quickly make a decision as to whether we can harvest their organs. You go to their family and you say, can we, because we actually, in fact, always check with the family. Can we uh, use this person's organs? It's a great cause, but it would really be helpful. And now the family say, well, what did they want? And now we we can say, well, uh, well, they were put on an organ donation register by default, so we don't really know whether what, what they want. So what Thaler said is, you want forced choice. So when you sign up for a driving license, you force people to express a view. You don't put them in on the donation register by default, but you say, we won't give you a driving license until you tell us, do you want to be on the donation register or do you not want to be on the donation register? And then when the family are in this tragic situation, you can actually tell them they made a positive choice. They decided they wanted to donate their organs. The previous situation was that they were off the register by default and they were kind of allowed to dodge that question. So as so often, the details matter. Yeah. And this also makes me very curious because I will say, like, personally, this type of like kind of libertarian paternalism really appeals to me. But I'm just curious in practice how it has actually worked. It's a good question. So the the biggest success story, I think, is um, is in pensions policy. 
but even there, there are questions. So the the standard thing you do in pensions is you say, well, when you sign up for, a, you join a company, and on day one, while you're filling in your details for human resources, um, they will, by default, by law, put you in the corporate pension. Uh, they have to do that unless you explicitly tell them not to. So this is a clever idea, and it very successfully increases uptake rates. But then the question is, well, um, where where is the pension invested? Um, what fund is it invested in? Who makes that choice by default? How much is the contribution rate? Because it's easy to have a contribution rate of, say, 3%, which is just not enough. Um, the, the default matters. But if you say that the, the, the uh, contribution rate is, say, 18%, which definitely is enough, well, um, people might balk at that and then they might opt out completely and then you've got a, a contribution of zero. So this is not straightforward. And the last time I saw um, Richard, which was a year or so ago, he was um, he was worried about you know exactly what the default rate should be and he was worried that it had been set too low and kind of by accident it had been set too low. And of course, once you've nudged people into this, they don't think about it, they don't worry about it. That's the whole point. And if it's set at the wrong level, well, they actually they should be thinking about it and they should be worrying about it. And to, and and then there's the sort of left liberal critique of this whole thing, which is that if you have a thing which is good for society and you want society to go that way, then at some point you want that thing to be legislated and decided by legislators rather than by technocrats yeah you want democratic oversight and sometimes there is a feeling i know thaler thinks this himself that sometimes the nudge is presented as the easy option so there are various nudges you could get to maybe get people to consume a bit less gasoline There's like the way you report um a car's mileage on the label when you're buying it you can tweak that to be more informative, but Thaler can says, we, "Can well, we turn I mean, it upside if, down? Like this is this is the nudge yeah, gallons which I per mile. Gallons really per want mile. to do, yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. When? How? Do you have any idea, Tim? Because you you are my favorite sort of historian of like bizarre economic historical quirks. Like, why is why is the ratio upside down? I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, yeah, now I need to go and ask Roman Mars. Roman Mars will know of ninety nine percent invisible. He will know. He will know. Um, but um, yeah, gallons per mile is much more informative for reasons that are probably too nerdy to go into here. Um, but Thaler points out if you actually want people to consume less gasoline, we know what to do. It's a gasoline tax. He's not. He's not. He's still an economist, right? He still thinks prices work. Um, and he just says, but you know, if you can't, for some reason, you can't introduce a gasoline tax for various political uh, various political constraints. Well, then you have to look for nudges because you don't have any alternatives. Right. And I think that's important because, yes, right now, I think a lot of us on the left, there are many things we would just like to legislate. But the reality is when you have a Congress that's not going to vote anything in, you often can't do that. But I think I think the problem with that is is exactly what we have seen, which is the mistrust of elites, because it's the elites who are making these decisions on behalf of everyone in an unaccountable, undemocratic way. And yeah, you wind up with um, our third segment today. But before... Right, yeah. But I mean, if you have elites telling you like, you know, here's a gas tax, or whether you have elites telling you, you know, I'm going to switch miles per gallon, you're, you're, if you don't like elites, both are going to bother you. 
but the one yeah. maybe easier. I don't know. I, I guess I guess my question is that I don't know if this is entirely an issue of um, accepting the opinion of elites or not. In the end, some of this stuff is is quite simple. It's uh, you know, it's design thinking. It's making things easier. It's designing um, tax forms more easily. It's filling in information uh, by default. It's making labels more informative. I mean, a lot of it is should not be controversial, but it just so happens that because economists and lawyers uh, spend a lot of time figuring this stuff out, and economists and lawyers are not actually trained in design, a lot of the stuff gets very badly designed. And one of the things that you know, behavioral economics is doing almost by accident, because of the kind of questions they're, they're engaging with, is to get people to think more seriously about what are basically fundamentally design questions. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Which is the perfect segue to your book, which is an, in, in yet another one of those bizarre differences between the UK and the US. For those of us here in America, we know it as 50 inventions that shape the modern economy. In the UK, it has some other very English title, I'm sure. Well, it's a very similar title. It's 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. So, it, I mean, it's not very different, but it just had to be <laughs> a little specific. bit different. It's like co color and color, you know. The difference is the difference between inventions and things, right? That, that well, somehow in America we care more about the sort of humans and in England you care more about the objects. I think where the difference comes from is there's also a BBC radio show and podcast called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. Also, you know, it's the same thing. It's me. It's the same content. And um, the British publisher wanted to use the BBC's title, whatever the BBC went for, 50 Things. Okay, 50 Things sounds good on radio. We'll do that. The Americans said, well, we don't really care what the BBC podcast is called. We want the very best title for America, and we want to talk about inventions, not things. So go figure. And it doesn't really matter, except for poor little me appearing on a beautiful internationalist podcast like Slate Money. <laughs> so we have to explain all this stuff to everyone. But no, no one really cares. They, they want to know about the book, surely. So, well, we want to know about the yes. book, but we also want to know about the podcast. Is, is there a... Is there a difference? Is there like the the podcast came first? Is this like the book of the podcast? They're, they're very similar. Obviously, you should listen to every episode and then buy lots of copies of the book. <laughs> but um, the so we they're, they're nine minute episodes, and in each episode, I'm exploring a particular invention or idea. And uh, the book has a little bit of extra material. It's got some linking thoughts, some opening thoughts, some concluding thoughts. Some of the chapters, for example, the one on double entry bookkeeping, have got loads of extra stuff that I just couldn't squeeze into the program. But yeah, they're the substantially covering the same topic in a similar way. And and it was it was lots of fun to write because what I found is very often when you're trying to communicate about economics, it can be a bit dry, it can be a bit statistical. When you talk about the history of economic when you talk about economic ideas through the history of technology. So what do you learn about winner takes all te um, economics 
by looking at the gramophone, for example, then suddenly everything comes alive. You've got particular people and things and events and stories that you can tell. And the economic principles hopefully come alive too. So it's good fun to work on. And one of those economic principles is precisely this idea of our lives being shaped by sort of decisions made in smoke-filled rooms by elites, right? The, you know, the barcode is a good one. The, the barcode is a good one. So yeah, there are two ways to tell the story of the barcode. You can either talk about this moment of inspiration that Joseph Woodland had in the late 1940s on a beach in Miami, visiting his grandparents, thinking about the Morse code he used to tap out as a Boy Scout and trying to solve this puzzle that he'd been set, which is how to speed up checkout at a Philadelphia retailer. And he lazily dragged his fingers through the sand in this circle and looked down at the circle and there was a sort of bullseye mark in the sand of uh, ridges and grooves. And he looked at that and he thought, I could have a circular bullseye barcode, which is the, the way the code was originally set out. And the thickness of the, of the lines could serve as a kind of code. And that was his initial moment of inspiration. And of course, it, it's changed a lot since then. But the other way to tell the story is uh, meetings between the uh, American Grocery Manufacturers Association and the American Food Retailers Association, just constantly for months and months and months arguing over whether it should be an 11-digit code or a 7-digit code, because these different standards would suit different people. The, the manufacturers found it much easier to have a long code because it would incorporate information they wanted. The retailers just wanted a short code because that meant simpler technology, cheaper computers at the checkout. It was going to be easier to install the system. So it, 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 yeah, there are both of these stories going on at once with, me, with many of these inventions. And what, what, I, I, I want to put out a, a plug here to my favorite Twitter account, which isn't particularly popular. It's, it's only got 4,000 odd followers. It's called at fake Unicode. Unicode is my favorite systems and standards um, group right now. It's like it's basically the international organization which governs the way that letters and diacriticals and now um, emojis are displayed on, on your computer screen. And because it is so unbelievably complicated and it's all evolving so fast, there's a whole bunch of weird and amazing glitches which happen. And we've seen them all a million times. So you wind up seeing little question marks instead of, you know, the accent E or something. And I love, I would urge you all to follow at fake Unicode. But this is one of those things where you really just need to get a bunch of, you know, experts who know what they're doing together, because you can't just, you know, this, this, there are these are areas or like, I don't know, um, iodizing salt, where you you don't want this stuff to be democratic. But but the thing is that uh, you're you're right. But in the case of the barcode, it's not just a case of well, you know, the experts need to make the right choice because the the choice that they made changes who wins and who loses in this game. So there is a political dimension to it. I mean, it was all contained within uh, the grocery industry. But the, the introduction of you know, the, the UPC uh, barcode, the Universal Product Code, the one that we're all thinking of when we, when we use the word barcode, the introduction of that technology favoured 
particular kinds of retailer. In particular, if you've got if a very large retailer with lots of checkouts, with lots of different kinds of product and a lot of turnover, the barcode is a godsend. It helps you keep track of stock. It also helps you prevent your own shop assistants from just sticking money in their own pockets uh, as as the as the money comes through the tills because it's very hard to everything's got to be scanned right so it solves big problems for people like Walmart it doesn't really solve any problems for the local mom and pop store so introducing this technology we we think of it as being oh it it makes checkout more efficient so that's good well which is true but it is also affecting what sort of business model works uh, and and makes more money and is one of the reasons why not the only reason but one of the reasons why big box stores took off so um you know there are very often with these technologies there are winners and losers yeah and that seemed to be the case with many of these stories even with like the story of barbed wire which i actually found a particularly interesting segment cuz it's not something you would think that would have such a huge impact but really did and and partly showing how it affected property rights and how the relationships between settlers and Native Americans and so many of these issues that when we talk about economics and we think of it kind of going back to you know Thaler this idea of this like perfectly rational system but it's it's not and there are always losers. And this is one of the themes which runs through the book, which I really wanted to ask you about. You do this wonderful sort of BBC thing of saying, well, you know, this created this, which is good, but it also created that, which is bad. And of the 50 things that, you know, you have to do that on the BBC, but like you're now on a freewheeling Wild West podcast, so you can let your, you know, opinions fly here. What's the most harmful invention in your book? Which is the worst? Oh, interesting question. So tetraethyl lead in gasoline is, the, I think, the worst in the simple sense that, it, that we never really needed it. I mean, I'm not, an, I'm not a petroleum engineer, um, although some of my best friends are petroleum engineers. We never really... <laughs> Never really needed it. There were alternatives that maybe weren't slight, you know, quite as convenient or quite as cheap. But um, it, and and it turned out to be really bad for everybody because it puts lead into the atmosphere and reduces IQs and contributes to behavioural problems and killed uh, workers in the factories producing the stuff. So that's the one where you just go, well, there, there are no upsides to that thing. It's all downside. But I suppose if you, if you wanted to go r- really big picture, there is an argument that the very first invention in the book, which is the plough, some people will say that's where it all went wrong. We were perfectly <laughs> happy before uh, Jared Diamond has made this argument. And um, no, we were perfectly happy before we settled down and started farming stuff. As hunter-gatherers, things were, things were great. Uh, societies were more egalitarian. You, you didn't have you know, people forming armies and going to steal other people's stuff because there was nothing to steal. There was more gender equality. There was less of this idea of treating women as possessions of men. And so all the bad and, stuff And happened. there was higher life expectancy. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, people were taller as well. Um, so the sort of sense of fewer diseases, fewer parasites. But yeah, when, when the plough took over, basically you just had these massive armies of kind of diseased, stunted people with clubs who just drove the nomads off and um, you know, started growing grain. So, uh, you know, maybe that's where it all went wrong. I mean, I'm rather more optimistic than that, I have to say. But um, <laughs> that's one that, that had a really, really big effect, you have to say. More recently, the Harbour Bosch process, which um, is about 100 years old, roughly, and uh, I, the Germans describe it as a uh, brot aus Luft, so bread from the air. 
and uh, it, just a way of taking nitrogen out of the atmosphere uh, and fixing it in a way that you can actually uh, use it uh, as a as a fertilizer. And that was developed by Fritz Haber, who uh, is one of a number of tragic Germans in the book. Uh, Fritz Haber. <laughs> ended up pioneering the weaponized use of chlorine. His wife, who was a brilliant chemist called Clara Imovar, killed herself with Harbour's own service revolver. And Harbour himself, despite being a German war hero uh, or and or war criminal, it was also Jewish. And so um, things didn't work out too well for him when the Nazis came in in the 1930s. So it's a sad story, but he, he really changed the world because without chemical fertilizer, the population of the world would probably about, be about 3 billion instead of seven eight billion and would that be and we're not going to get into yeah. the question of whether that would be better <laughs> that's another um, per, that's personally i'm just going to stick with my my own personal belief that by far the worst invention in the whole thing is management consultancy <laughs> but, um, i like that i may no. have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> but let's let's get newsier and get the update from britain on the i believe the technical term is omni shambles that is Brexit. You, you could call it that. Or, or you could call it a train crash. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? So I've been seeing more noise recently. These things come in waves. But I've been seeing two big waves of, of sort of Brexit noise on my Twitter feed. And one has been a continuation of something which has been said since before the vote even happened, which is there's no way that Britain is going to be able to negotiate a deal before the Article 50 deadline, and it's just impossible. And so they might have to just leave the EU without any deal at all, which would be disastrous. And that's been getting louder and louder because it's becoming more and more obvious that the incompetents in charge of the UK are going to be able to negotiate anything. But then underneath that sort of rattling along has been a slightly growing thing which of of like maybe we don't need to leave maybe we can unsign article 50 and just like say ah never mind yeah well <laughs> yeah i think you perfectly summarized no one has a clue so it's probably it's probably worth just very quickly summarizing where we are so yes there was a referendum last summer um so 15 18 months ago 15 months ago, I guess, the British people narrowly voted to leave the EU. Um, then this spring, Theresa May triggered Article 50. That is the official process for leaving the EU. It takes two years. The EU had said, we're not going to talk about this until you trigger Article 50. So she triggered, triggered Article 50. Um, that means the clock is now ticking. And just by default, if nobody agrees anything, the UK's out in March of uh, 2018. So that kind of is the context for the negotiations. 2019. Uh, yes, you're right. Sorry, 2019. Yeah, it's not, the situation's not quite that bad. So it takes two <laughs> years. Then, um, uh, fresh with triggering Article 50, Theresa May held an election. She was expected to crush the opposition Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, who's a, he's a hard left, an old-style 1970s socialist. She didn't crush him. She narrowly won. Uh, she had to do a deal to keep any kind of uh, majority at all. So now we're in the situation where the government, the Conservatives, can be held to ransom both by the hard Brexit posse and by the hard Remain posse. Meanwhile, 
the opposition Labour Party, many of their voters were for Remain. Most of their MPs are for Remain. But their leader, who's riding high after outperforming expectations, is kind of for leave uh, because he thinks the EU might stop him nationalising things and, and you know, might get in the way of that kind of thing. And is basically Although a project of international capital. He technically voted... Well, I mean, he didn't really campaign for leave, mm. but if anyone asked him, he kind of grudgingly said under his breath that, yeah, we should remain. He was grudgingly for Remain, but now he seems to be have, have really embraced the Leave thing. But he's, I mean, he's learned something from Donald Trump, which is you, if you just keep, change, you know, changing your mind, um, <laughs> yes. then um, people will people will hear what they want to hear. So the Remain supporters hear that he's for Remain, and the Leave supporters hear that he's for Leave, and people just you know project wishful thinking. So we have a situation where neither the government nor the opposition is in a strong position to formulate policy. Meanwhile, over in the EU, Michel Barnier, who is representing the EU27, is tapping his watch. And and basically, whenever there's a, a negotiation, he says, well, hmm, we made some progress, but really um, things have been a bit disappointing. So um, hopefully we'll make more progress next time. And why wouldn't he? Because the, the clock keeps ticking. The longer the clock ticks, the more desperate the Brits potentially become, the more some businesses will just relocate, particularly banks, for example, and that's relocate really, to, to that's Frankfurt. That's started already, right? That has started. I mean, I think you know, not in a huge way, but it's all, you know, th- things are moving and some irreversible decisions have already been made. So the counter reaction now is from the from the sort of the firm uh, levers is, well, maybe we should just leave without a deal because the EU are kind of messing us around. And, and by the way, as was predictable, of course, the EU are going to mess us around if we voted to leave. So we, we should just leave without a deal. Now, I suspect that would probably be catastrophic. And we just have, you know, I mean, at least officially, we don't have access to radioisotopes for x-rays. We wouldn't be able to, planes wouldn't be able to take off and land because we wouldn't have the right international agreements. There'd be huge queues of, of trucks at uh, the port of Dover, up the M20 uh, motorway. I mean, it probably won't be that bad. They'll probably figure something out. But in principle, if there really is no deal at all, then that's what the situation looks like. And I, and I think that would be really devastating again because that uncertainty would cause this trickle of job losses and, and companies moving that we've been seeing to probably turn into a flood of businesses and capital leaving. I mean, again, we've already seen it with like Standard Charter opening up another branch. Both DB and, and JPM have talked about moving around, say, potentially 4,000 jobs. And I think in a worst case scenario, you're talking like 75,000 jobs from the financial services and sector. And that's, that's just banks. Yeah. Never mind like the actual productive parts of the economy. Although it does represent like 40% of their tax receipts. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, the, the British economy hasn't done that badly. This year doesn't seem to be shaping up so well. Last year, was there was a sharp fall in the pound, but other than that, things seemed to go quite well, which initially did kind of embolden the the, the Leave side. They said, well, you, know, you said it was going to be, a, you remained and said it was going to be a disaster and it wasn't so... So what's the problem? Um, but it is, I, I, it's hard to find anybody right now who is happy with the way the negotiations are going, whether you're you know, for leave, for remain. Everyone feels that it's not being handled in the way that they would want. Obviously, what everybody wants is different. Um, 
Remainers don't want to go at all, and if they do go, they want to go um, slowly and and gradually, and not leave the single market, leave the EU itself, but not leave the single market, and not leave the customs union, and sort of be half in, half out. Leavers want to go. Nobody's happy with the situation, but it's very easy to see. This was kind of the logic of the election result. Now, now Theresa May can be held hostage by both wings of her party. Jeremy Corbyn's party, the Labour Party, is also split. So. I mean, and it must be interesting to be on the EU side of the negotiating table because it's it's pretty clear that the the twenty two members of the British cabinet are more split than the twenty seven member states of the <laughs> EU. Yeah. And and we do have a parliamentary system, and it's you know it's pretty clear that Theresa May is only prime minister because no one in the Conservative Party wants to face the prospects of a leadership election right now um although who knows that might well happen anyway um it's it, you're, you're right that it's completely chaotic and that when the chaos monkeys are in charge like no good can come of this um which brings me to my you know original question which is like is there now actually a chance given how catastrophic no deal would be if we get closer and closer to the deadline and no deal becomes more and more likely as seems to be the base case um is there a chance that we could just rip up article 50 and say actually never mind we'll stay in after all um legally uh that seems to be the case Although it, the government is determinedly not discussing this and doesn't want to, you know, doesn't seem to want to receive legal advice and doesn't want to report any legal advice it may have received, but it 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 seems as though we could unilaterally stop the process. Um, politically, whether that would happen, I mean, it, it's it is hard to reverse engineer a scenario where it happens. But I mean, so much that has occurred over the last two years has been surprising. You wouldn't rule it out. I mean, from a logical point of view, you'd say, look, it was a pretty close referendum result. This is obviously more difficult than people predicted. And so it is conceivable that the British public may change their minds and may decide they don't want to leave. But I don't really see much sign of that politically. And and in terms of public opinion that the leavers i mean every like britain does seem to be more sort of resigned to than angry about the leaving from and again, yeah let's get on I with it also, is the view i think yeah. it's also important to remember that we're not just talking about the uk we're also talking about the other 27 countries that i think want to get this done with they they would have to all unanimously vote to extend if they extend it or to change. And I don't think... No, they, no, we're not talking about an extension. We're no, talking just to, about... But even the, then, if the, any type of change, I think they would all have to unanimously agree to that. Right. So that's the question. You you don't try and change anything. You just say... You just withdraw the artif- Article 50 notification. And I don't... I mean, there, again, like you can find a lawyer to argue anything. But at that point, I don't think that the tw- EU 27 would insist on you know, second-guessing that decision. Right. And, and but, although but I do I think... think yeah. I was going to say, I think you're right, Anna, that it, it is... Um, there are certain kinds of changes that uh, that the EU27 are not going to agree to just because it opens a can of worms. They've, they've agreed a particular kind of position. And there are certain sorts of things that just make life very complicated for them, and they just they don't want to go there. But as Felix says, maybe just saying, all right, 
well, we've changed our mind, we, we stay. Maybe that would be acceptable. Maybe that would be acceptable to the EU27. Or maybe even if it's not acceptable, actually, we could. the European Court of Justice would say, yeah, actually, the Brits can do that if, if they want. <laughs> we'll see. I, w- I would be... Um, I, almost anything is possible. I, I would be kind of surprised if we if Article 50 is withdrawn. I'd be delighted, but I'd be <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's. What do you think, Tim? Should we? Should, I I feel like we should we should have like two numbers rounds, or rather one numbers round and one little quick Dick Thaler round. Because um, when he was asked at his press conference what he was going to do with the money, because this is the thing which you know economists love about the Nobel Prize is it comes with lots of money. He kind of gave a sly grin and said, I'm sure I'm going to do something very irrational with it. So what 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 irrational thing would you do with a Nobel-sized amount of money? That's what, like a million dollars or so? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit less than that, but I, I haven't checked. I think it's about $700,000. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, it's, it's not trivial. So he's a bit cheeky to say he's going to spend it irrationally because he's not, he doesn't actually think that people are monumentally irrational at all points that's not something he thinks i guess the the thing that he that is very much in line with what dick thaler thinks is he would treat the prize money differently from other money like it would have this it wouldn't be fungible in a straightforward way so he would have this this is all the money i've earned over my lifetime this is money i've got in the bank account blah 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 this is my nobel prize money and it's different and this is one of dick thaler's Early ideas, he called it mental accounting, and he said, "Look, we we think you know, we have entertainment money, and we have um, rainy day money, and we have hard earned money, and we have windfall money, and um, and this is and, the entire reason why we have savings accounts. And it and it it matters. And this you know this thing that we do it doesn't make logical sense uh, in classical economic theory, but it is a good description of human behavior. And it does lead to certain testable predictions. Um, and um, so, yeah, I just, the, the very fact that you would treat the Nobel money differently from all the other money that you've got. Or that you're is, even uh, asking the question, is like, a very, what are you going is, to do yeah. with this money kind of implies that this money isn't fungible with that money, which is all of the other money, which he's earned over right. his lifetime, which is quite a lot. Quite so, quite so. Um, how about you, Anna? Do you have an, a, a favorite, like, irrational thing to do with a windfall? Um, let's see. If you were going to... Well, I mean, I would say if you wanted to do the world's most irrational thing with the money, you'd probably use it to buy, like, lottery tickets. Like, the probably most irrational economic activity anyone can engage in. Some some lottery tickets, if, if you pick... If you pick 
and wait for the jackpots to roll over can can have like potentially some weirdly positive <laughs> EV. I mean, the most irrational thing I think would be to buy like initial coin offerings. <laughs> Um, which I have to say, I was just talking to um, the only person I would ever entrust with um, a crypto investment, which is, is this um, former Fortress Investments guy called Mark Novogratz, who's now starting up a crypto hedge fund where he's going to trade Bitcoin, Ether, Ripple, and a million other crypto coins and the reason why i kind of like this in contradistinction to like the actual coins themselves the speculative investments which i think is just crazy is that he is the first to admit that they're all in bubbles and he's like great i love bubbles i'm a trader i have traded bubbles for decades i know how to trade bubbles i can trade them up i can trade them down i can make lots of money and I'm not going to go out there evangelizing how these things are going to change the world or be worth a million dollars in, you know, X years time. I'm just going to trade this. And he's already, I mean, he, he this is, e this is the easy bit. He's made a lot of money buying ether, at, you know, $1 and selling it at a hundred dollars or something, but he's also made a lot of money shorting ripple, which is like there are very very few people out there who have made money shorting cryptocurrencies and he's there are very few people out there who are even capable of shorting yeah, covering that short's going to be um, tough. he's managed to find like some weird guy in asia who's got like a massive pot of crypto which he wants to keep for 100 years and is happy to lend it out to him and um and he's managed to find a way of doing doing the shorting so i don't know maybe i would take that money and throw it into Mark Novogratz's crypto hedge fund because who knows? And also, honestly, like investing in almost anything right now is pretty irrational. I feel like where prices are right now. Which which is why we shouldn't really invest it in anything. We should just go out and spend it exactly. on stuff. Quite so. Um, but let's Quite have so. a proper numbers round. Uh, Tim, do you have a number for me? I do have a number. Um, it's not actually a number of the week, but I hope you'll forgive me. That's uh, quite okay. It, it's 759. Um, so a few weeks ago, um, very talented young Financial Times journalist, my colleague Paul McLean, uh, died. And we miss him very much. And one of his great uh, pieces of work that he produced for us was to spend months working out how many treaties the UK would have to renegotiate uh, upon leaving the European Union, because all of these treaties piece. were kind it was, of—it was it amazing. Was, it was—I don't know if anyone read the whole thing from beginning to end, but just sort of scrolling down it and stopping randomly, and you'd be like, "Oh my god, this is impossible. yeah." And there's the, you know, the the law of the sea and kind of uh, mineral rights and access to uh, radioactive materials and I mean intellectual property and all of these different treaties that are all that we don't need to worry about at the moment because they're all covered by our European Union membership 759 of them and and Paul McLean tracked down every one and put them in a great big spreadsheet for everybody to read and enjoy and i believe that that this is not the first time we have had that number but um yes paul in your memory we will have this number again because it's yet another reason why britain shouldn't leave the yes. eu my number is going to be one which Anna enjoys, I think. It's minus 0 
percent, which actually makes it minus zero point zero 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 eight. But this is the yield that on on issuance of a new uh, zero coupon bond that came from the Republic of Ireland, four billion euros zero coupon at a negative yield. And we have seen a lot of negative yielding sovereign debt out there in the world. Yeah. This we've we've talked about sovereign bonds with negative yields for many years. In fact, for pretty much the entire history of slate money, this is the first time I have ever seen anybody issue debt at a, ne- at a negative yield. Which it feels like an important distinction to me, but I don't know. I, I guess, I guess, on a sort of Dick Taylor level, it's an important dis- distinction. But from a Economic, trading yeah, level, it's, it's not. not. Right. <laughs> Interesting, though. How about you? So my number is fifteen. So this is the number of Venezuelan communities that have been given rabbits as part of the Maduro administration's newest plan to tackle hunger in Venezuela. So they're not going to actually, you know, say pay their importers. What they're doing is they're giving communities rabbits with the idea that the rabbits will then breed because that's what rabbits do. And then people will have all of this access to protein. The problem is that when they then went back and checked in on some of these communities, they found that it turns out rabbits are cute and so nobody wanted to eat them. And instead, <laughs> people were naming them, putting bows on them, keeping them in their homes. So now the Maduro administration has engaged in a re-education campaign to convince people that rabbits are not cute. So just when you thought America had a monopoly on ridiculous leaders, oh no, Venezuela continues. Wow. I mean, I like to eat rabbits. And I... We like this year for some reason in New York State there have been a lot of rabbits and they have been eating a lot of vegetables which people were growing and I'm not a massive rabbit fan but the idea of trying to persuade someone who thinks that a rabbit is cute and and try and persuade them that it's not cute seems even harder than trying to persuade someone who believes that vaccines cause autism <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that in fact they don't. But if you're trying to um, persuade someone who's a little um, fussy about the idea, uh, you just just call it underground chicken. That'll work. <laughs> this is, I mean, it is true that meat in general is named something other than the name of the animal for precisely that reason, that we call pig pork or we call cows beef just to make it seem less animal-like. Even to say rabbit, we don't call it like bunny. it's it's, like a main cause of thumper yeah no that that would never really go anywhere it's because all the uh the words for the animals are all good old anglo-saxon words and when the french came in and stole our country they were the ones who got to eat all the animals and so words like boeuf and pork you know they they took over and and after brexit we will get our own (laughs) names for animals back i'm looking forward to it no, no more, no more venison. Venison is always the one which strikes me as like the most obscure. Yeah. You know, like we'll just go back to eating deer, and we'll enjoy it because we will have no economy to speak of, and all we're going to be able to do is go out shoot with our bows and <laughs> arrows and shoot deer and and probably you know build an open fire to to I don't know. It's gonna Tim. All I all I can say is I hope do you have a. Uh, you know, the right of residence in any country which isn't 
about to fall off the coast of the European Union, never to be seen again. All all my children, courtesy of their grandfather, are Irish citizens, and one of my children is also an American citizen. But I only have British citizenship, so I'm I'm stuck, you know, and I'll we'll just have to make the best of it. Well, we we will we will accept your american citizen child over here in america and then maybe they'll be able to petition to bring you over as a relative uh, anchor baby yes that's the way. <laughs> so with that tim thank you so much for um braving the rocky waters of international codex and managing to make it to the end of this week's edition of slate money it is in it is possible that we might have another FT journalist next week. This could be a whole like little mini series of FT awesome people. Tune in next week to find out. Do come out to the Bell House in Brooklyn if you have the ability to enter the United States on November the 15th at half past seven in the evening for our live show, which is all going to be about food and Send us emails, slate money at slate.com to thank Dan Schrader for putting shows together across international waters. It is non-trivial. So with that, I will just plug Spoiler Specials, which is a Slate podcast hosted by Dana Stevens and occasionally Willa Paskin, which comes out every other week on Fridays. And, and they spoil movies for you. Wait until you've seen the film, and then Slate movie critic Dana Stevens will be able to talk about all of the things that she can't put in her review because it would spoil the film. Okay, with that, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.